I am so excited to be here today to talk about all things vice. <laughs> it sounds like it's kind of the, the morning's theme. Um, so, so why vice? Um, I started delving a little deeper into the history of prostitution in Montana because this past year in April, the organization that I work for, uh, the Extreme History Project, moved our offices into this house which was built in 1891, and it was built specifically as a house of ill repute, right in the heart of Bozeman's red light district. At the same time as we were moving our offices into this building, we were developing a red light district walking tour for, for Bozeman. So for many reasons, my research interests converged on red light districts and the landscape of vice. So the definition of vice, for all you upstanding moral citizens out there, is the wicked or immoral behavior or criminal activities involving prostitution, pornography, or drugs. So that's what we're going to delve into a little bit here today. So as, as we were moving into our new office and I was developing this walking tour, I was spending a lot of time just wandering around through the landscape of Bozeman's historic red light district. And questions began to form in my mind about the history of prostitution and the history of red light districts. And some of the questions that were percolating and actually coming from some of the um, participants who were on the walking tour were about these restricted or defined or confined districts like Bozeman's. And I knew that Bozeman was a very confined, restricted red light district, but I wondered if there were districts like this across Montana. I had in my pre preconceived notions about this in my own mind, and um, I started thinking also about the local Chinese communities and their uh, relationship to these red light districts. And I had preconceived notions about that in my mind too. I thought, oh, they're always um, right next to the Chinese community, the red light district and the Chinese community are, are, are right together. I knew that was the case in Bozeman. I didn't know really if that was a case, the case across Montana. I also was wondering about who owned these houses in the red light districts. I was wondering um, if the madams owned these houses. I knew in Bozeman, sometimes they did. I didn't know about the rest of Montana. But the ultimate question that I kept coming back to, kept returning to, tried to get away from this, but kept returning to this, is did these women have agency? Did these madams, and I'm gonna be talking mostly about madams here today, did these madams have agency? And when I say that word agency, I mean the process through which an individual uses their resources to take advantage of economic opportunities to achieve desired outcomes. So, did they exert power in these um, red light districts? Did they have independence? So, I began reading. <laughs> I read a whole lot of really crazy books on prostitution. <laughs> and of course, I read a lot from Ellen Baumler. Ellen is um, gonna be mentioned probably a lot today here, um, this morning. But um, I read a lot of um, work by Ellen Baumler, Mary Murphy, and Paula Petrick. And of course, they are our Montana rock stars in this realm. But I read a lot of books about national um, prostitution and the history of red light districts as well. And so in doing this reading, more questions and ideas were forming. So I delved into my own research to answer these questions. And that's what I'm going to share with you today. So I, of course, I started with Sanborn maps. Um, because that's where we often start with any research project. 
We're incredibly lucky that the Library of Congress recently, in 2017, uploaded many Sanborn insur insurance maps for cities and towns in Montana. And for those of you who don't know, the Sanborn Map Company was a publisher of detailed maps of U.S. cities and towns in the 19th and 20th centuries. The maps were originally created to allow fire insurance companies to assess the total liability in urban areas of the United States. Since they contain such wonderful detailed information about properties and individual buildings, Sanborn maps are very valuable for documenting changes in the built environments. And red light districts are easily spotted on Sanborn maps because houses of prostitution are denoted as female boarding houses. So um, Sanborn maps have been available online prior to this, but with the Library of Congress putting them online, it made them much more accessible, easier to use, and they are in color, which is so awesome. <laughs> so I decided to use, utilize this research as a sample to look at red light districts across Montana and ask some questions of these documents. My research questions for the Sanborn maps included, um, how many town, how many of the, the towns represented in the Sanborn Maps collection online had red light districts? Were all red light districts located near Main Street or by the railroad? Were the red light districts associated with the local Chinese community? So some of those questions I had been thinking about before. So that is what I do. Here are some of my questions. This is me doing a walking tour where I'm getting so, a lot of these questions from the public as well. Okay, so here's my analysis. This is what I figured out. This is what I came to. So in, look at, in looking at these Sanborn maps, there were 40 cities and towns across Montana in the late 1890s that had Sanborn maps. So I decided to focus in on just the late 1890s to narrow the scope of it. What I found is that 22, so, we, so there was 40 cities. Of course, in the 1890s, there was a lot more than 40 cities in Montana, but only 40 cities had Sanborn maps. So what I found is that 22 of those 40 towns had red light districts in the 1890s, so about half. What I consider a red light district is a grouping of buildings denoted on the Sanborn map with that female boarding euphemism. And so I did take, um, I did say that a district could be one boarding house, one female boarding house, up to 30 female boarding houses. So that was what a district was for me. Of the 22 red light districts, 11 were associated with the local Chinese community. So half were associated with the Chinese community. And that was surprising to me. I thought they all would be, um, would be related, but they were not. Of the 22 districts, 21 of the districts were located one or two blocks from Main Street. So almost all the districts were one or two blocks off the Main Street. Of the 22, 11 districts had, were located one or two blocks from the railroad. And of course, you know, if you think about Montana towns, some were uh, created before the railroad came, and some were created because the railroad came. And of course, this makes things a little bit different as well. Of the 20 to 21 towns had grouped red light districts in the 1890s. And so what I mean by that is, is that um, 
uh, most of them had a red light district that was very grouped, very restricted. Um, Miles City was that one anomaly, and it has a red light district. It's just kind of two separate grouped areas with a scattering of houses in between. So that's what I mean by that grouped. Okay, so the study answered some of my questions, but it did not answer the most difficult ones. Did madams own property in red light districts? And most importantly, did they have agency? So I had to drill down a little bit farther and looked at three communities to answer this question. The three communities or three case studies that I chose to highlight are Bozeman, Big Timber, and Dillon. These three places had similar red light districts in the 1890s. That's why I chose them. And also, they were close to Bozeman, so I could drive to them. <laughs> so I, um, I hit the road, and I traveled to Dillon and Big Timber to dig through these deed, their deed records, business licenses, newspapers, to actually stand in the locations where the red light districts had once thrived, wanting to better understand the landscape in each of the towns. I work in Bozeman, live in Bozeman, so spent a lot of time, and now have an office uh, right in the heart of the, the red light district. So I spent a lot of time in the middle of Bozeman's red light, so I already had a good feel for that one. So let's start and talk about Bozeman a little bit. As we zoom into Bozeman's red light district, we can see that the district was located, let me get my pointer here, um, just, just one block off Main Street. So here's Main right here. Okay, you can see it, right? <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, so Main's right there. You can see the red light is circled in red. You can see Mendenhall is just right here. And so that is the red light district um, on the Sanborn map. And you can also see a historic photo of the red light district right up there. And that historic district of Bozeman's, um, that is a photo that was taken in 1890. And so that, that is the district. That's what a historic red light district looks like. It's not real fancy. <laughs> there was one nice big house that you can see there kind of at the, the left-hand side. But most of the dwellings are pretty um, wood-framed, small, little houses. And so that is what um, the, the red light district in Bozeman looks like. So if we drill down a little bit more here, the female boarding houses that you see up there on the Sanborn map are outlined in red, and houses occupied by Chinese are outlined in blue. This is an example of a town where the Chinese community lived and worked directly adjacent to the district. These two communities sit side by side, and as Ellen Baumler notes, they are symbiotic. This alley was called China Alley, um, right? right there, that alley between Main Street and Mendenhall. That is um, denoted as China Alley on many maps. You'll notice a boarding house that is not a female boarding house right here. It's called the Fraser House, and Miss, a Mrs. Fraser ran that house. But this was never operated as a brothel or a house of ill repute, and was never listed as female boarding on the Sanborn maps, but a female-run operation nonetheless. So I always think that that's interesting. How did people coming into Bozeman's red light district know that Mrs. Fraser's house was different than Lizzie Woods's house just down the street? So. 
Um, Bozeman was not a railroad town. It was settled in 1864, so the red light is near Main Street, but not near the railroad. Women did own houses of prostitution throughout Bozeman's red light history, starting in the 1870s. There are only two buildings that remain of Bozeman's historic red light district today, including the ones you see up here. Um, our building, where our offices are located, is on the house on the left, which is more of a parlor house, while the other buildings were used by the Chinese, the other building was used by the Chinese in its early years and held Chinese prostitutes. In later years, this house was occupied by white prostitutes. And according to a gentleman who um, wandered into our office a few months ago, he said that he grew up in the neighborhood and he said this building was still in operation as a brothel in the early 1960s. So that was this one over here that was still in operation. Okay, so that's a little peek into Bozeman's red light district. Now let's move on to Big Timber. So this di district, as you can see, is a little bit smaller than Bozeman's in the 1890s. This particular Sanborn map is from 1896. The Chinese community is located within the red light district, but it is only represented by a single building. The district is located about a block from B Big Timber's Main Street, as most of them are. And you'll notice that Big Timber, unlike Bozeman, is a railroad town. So the railroad, the, the district was located right next to the railroad, which is right over here. You can see this is Front Street right here. And of course, the railroad is off the map, but it would have just been right, right next to that. Um, let's see. So, women did own property in Big Timber as well, but I noticed something different than Bozeman. In, in Bozeman, women were owning property starting in the 1870s. In Big Timber, they started owning property later, in about 1903-1905. And uh, one of the women who owned property, who was a madam in Big Timber, was African-American. Her name was Eva Sinclair. So, um, interesting as well. So this is a view of Big Timbers District today that you see up there, and nothing remains of the district. So Bozeman has just two remnants, Big Timber, not a thing. There's a gas station. That's going to become, <laughs> that you're going to see that again. So let's move on to Dillon. So we have Dillon, um, much like Big Timber. Dillon's district is located across the street from the railroad but also close to Main Street. So um, the railroad is just right there up at the top. Okay. So women did own buildings in this district as well. And most notably, they owned the big brick or the big red brick, which is located right here. And you can see that that's a brick building. Um, if you know your Sanborns, you know that anything in red is brick. Anything in blue is a stone building. Anything in yellow is a wood frame building. So you can see that the big brick, um, if you didn't know the name of it, is a big brick building. So the district in Dillon was known as the island, and the women who worked in, the pro in prostitution bought and sold these properties to one another over time. But like Big Timber in Dillon, they started owning property later on in the early 1900s. You can see that the Chinese community was, much like in Bozeman, adjacent to the red light district. 
There are no buildings also that remain of Dillon's Red Light District today. But there is another gas station. <laughs> Looks very much like Big Timber's gas station. They might be the same company, I don't know. They look exactly alike. Um, so by looking closely at these three locations, it became apparent that women did hold a stake, real estate-wise, in these confined districts and bought and sold property very frequently. So my question was answered. Women did own property in these districts. And as I was doing this work, I came across some other interesting things, that women were not only in the sex business. Um, I noticed that these women, often madams, uh, were not only doing sex work in real estate, but they were entrepreneurs involved in many different ways of making a living. So one of those ways was alcohol. One, um, in each house, the first order of business was to set up the drinks. The men were often charged a dollar per drink in a house of ill repute, where they could get the same drink at the nearby saloon for just 25 cents. But it was probably, you know, pay the extra money and go to the, go to the brothel. This was a very lucrative aspect of the business. Madams would procure a saloon business license, as you can see here. Um, this is the license for Grace McGinnis. And right over here on the right-hand side, you can see that the business license was not cheap. It was $87, and that was only for three months. So every three months, she would go in to the, the local um, city office, buy this license for $87, and we see that happen again, again and again. Now, Grace McGinnis worked in Bozeman. This license is from 1895, and Grace worked in Bozeman for a time, but then she hit it big, and she became the madam of the Dumas brothel in Butte. <laughs> so uh, so she, she went up after, after uh, her time in Bozeman. But, um, but that kind of explains that idea of alcohol. Now, I don't know if this business license was a license for um, her, her saloon in her house that she ran in Bozeman, or if this was a saloon on Main Street. I'm not really sure of that. So another way um, was jewelry. Jewelry was another way for prostitutes to invest and hold their wealth. Here is a probate inventory, inventory for Libby Hayes, a madam who worked in Bozeman. You can see that right down here. She died at the young age of 34 years old from uterine cancer. At the time of her death, she owned a diamond necklace worth $1,000. Unbelievable. One diamond brooch worth $200 and two diamond rings, each worth $175. Jewels were a very easy way to hold wealth, and because of the transitory lifestyle of these women, they were easy to transport either in a pocket or on their body. So they could, they could if they had to leave town quickly, it was easy to grab their jewels and go. So they could take their money with them. The jewels held or increased value over time. In this photo, you can see Josephine Airy, a Helena madam, displaying her wealth on her hand in the form of jewels. So, still coming back to this question of agency and thinking about this whole time, um, did these women have agency? So as I was working through this research project, I kept thinking about this question. And I would like to point out that I'm not talking about the average prostitute when I'm thinking about this idea of agency, but instead the madams, the women who rose to the top and owned or operated these houses of ill repute. So I'm going to argue, yes, these women did have 
limited agency. They were able to navigate the landscape of vice to their advantage through the economic benefits that came to them, not only through the women who worked for them, but also through buying and selling property, investing in jewelry, and by operating saloons, either within or without, outside their houses. With this economic ability, they were able to make choices and reap the rewards um, of these choices. They had the choice within their confined space. So because of that, in a limited way, I would say these women did have some power, some agency. I do want to make it clear that only a few women within each district had this agency. Most did not. I also want to make it clear that no woman would probably willingly come to this life. The only reason they found themselves in this district was for survival as a result of poverty, drug use, and or trauma. As Mary Murphy argued in her thesis, Women on the Line, women in urban settings were unable to work for a living wage unless they became domestic servants, which was not at all an attractive option for numerous reasons, including <coughs> low pay, long hours, sexual harassment from employers, and poor, very poor working conditions often. The only way they could survive as domestic servants was because they received room and board. So this is a photo of Ollie Warren, a madam from Billings, Montana. And if she doesn't have agency, I don't know who does. <laughs> so I, I, I always, you know, I like cemeteries. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the landscape of vice in the cemetery. So just to come back to Bozeman for a minute here, I've been talking about the landscape of vice in life, but there's also much to learn about a community from the landscape of its cemetery. I was curious if the landscape of vice transferred over from the red light district to the cemetery. And here you see where five of Bozeman's madams are buried, marked by yellow dots. So you'll see um, right here, is Frances and Kitty Warren, and they're buried together in one grave, and they were sisters. Here you see Hattie and Libby Hayes, they were also sisters, buried together in one grave. And then you see right here, um, you see uh, the, the gravestone, the monumental gravestone of Lizzie Woods. Her given name was Mary Frances Jackson, which is the name on the headstone. That gravestone right there is more than six feet tall. It's huge. And all the other gravestones around it are very small. <laughs> um, and so is Frances Butner and Kenny Warren's headstones are, is a huge, over six foot tall headstone as well. Hattie and Libby's is a little bit smaller. But you'll see that they are scattered throughout the cemetery, not in a confined location or put in a designated and segregated area like they were in life. So in death, these women were free from the district. The Chinese and Japanese in Bozeman Cemetery were not so lucky. They are in a confined area, as in life, so in death, marked by this yellow square that you see way over here on the side. I can't say whether this was the choice of the Chinese and the Japanese who were interred there, or the choice of the Bozeman community in putting them in this area. But maybe Mark Johnson, I think Mark's in the room somewhere. There he is. So maybe um, Mark is talking this afternoon on Chinese burial practices, and maybe he'll have something, something to say about that. So in conclusion, red light districts are complex landscapes 
and I've just started my journey into these fascinating places. Women are confined, were confined to these very restricted districts, which sometimes paired with the local Chinese community. The grouping of the Chinese and the ladies was a way of confining vice, a place most women found themselves due to poverty or trauma. These districts were nearly always right in the heart of the community, just one or two blocks off Main Street or just close to the railroad. Easily accessible, very easily accessible. Survival was one was the reason women became prostitutes. No woman would choose this life, but once they arrived, some of the women were able to set goals and accomplish these goals, showing agency. The landscape of vice changed dramatically in 1917-1918 with the closure of the red light districts across Montana due to a national movement by the U.S. government as we entered uh, World War I. Montana sex workers did not move into other jobs when these red light districts closed down. That was not a possibility. Instead, they went underground, walking the streets, checking into assignation houses with their johns, or working out of back rooms of saloons or hotels. The parlor houses and the madams that ran them were a thing of the past. I'm not glorifying the parlor houses, but they were a much safer place for women to work. I want to leave you with one last image. And this is of Bozeman's red light district again. And this is the house of Bozeman Madam Lizzie Woods, one of my favorites. <laughs> In 1963, this house was demolished. And a local man from Bozeman, Harvey Griffin, wrote an article in the Gallatin Tribune that reminisced on Bozeman's earlier days and this house that once belonged to Lizzie, Lizzie Woods. He says, in this article, he says, back of the Bozeman Hotel, they are wrecking a house that was once the recreation center for early day Bozeman, a landmark of the town. Its upper story raised, its bricks lying scattered mounds, its empty vacant windows that have that haunted remembering stare. Like the eyes of old men sitting on the poorhouse steps and watching for someone who had never come. Old things, if we watch them, have a very human quality, and that is because they have been intimately connected with people who have these qualities themselves. Certainly, this old house was closely connected with the robust life of early Bozeman. The people who entered its portals were intensely human. Good or bad, this house was an important part of the West's adolescence. As some of the old timers might say, sin is such a comfort when you get to know it. <laughs> so thank you so much, and I hope that this inspires you to go stand in your own local red light district. Just for a moment, you'll be glad you did. Thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon.